You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, sunny December day. Well, at least where I live. I think <laughs> you've got something else going on over there, Don. I don't see the sky at all, actually, here. We're recording this program. Uh, we're doing the recording December 27, 2023, for broadcast on December 28, 2023. I woke up this morning to thick, thick Thule fog over here in Solano County. Our temperature is apparently about 46 degrees. Uh, you see sun over there in Davis, only 15 miles away? Well, it's, you know, there's a light haze, but yeah, I see sunshine. We've got some clouds moving in. It looks like we might have some rain off and on as much as an inch to an inch and a half over the next several days, but they keep backing off on those totals because these storms are mostly missing us. Last week's storms, for example, when Davis recorded two-thirds of an inch and Dixon recorded one and a quarter inch, up in wine country, they had two to three inches, and that's pretty much the pattern with rainstorms as they come in off the, off the Pacific. They hit the mountain range, and they get the rain, and then we get a little less, and Davis gets even less, and then it scoots through the valley and starts raining more on the other side. We might see an inch to an inch and a half over the next few days. Chance of showers a day of the broadcast, 40% chance of showers with a high of 60 degrees. Thursday night will be a chance of showers, 30%, 47 degrees. Friday, showers likely, 60% chance, 62 degrees. Friday night, 90% chance of showers, 50 degrees warmer. Uh, Saturday, 80% chance of showers, 58 degrees. Saturday night, chance of showers, then mostly cloudy, dropping down to 44 degrees. And Sunday, 55 degrees. Let's take a look at the extended forecast and see what they're talking about here for later on. Sunday through Wednesday, as the precipitation chances begin to taper off throughout the day on Saturday, Overall, quieter weather is then anticipated across the late weekend into early next week. A short wave does look to move through Southern California late Sunday into Monday. Precipitation impacts across interior Northern California will be limited due to the location. Otherwise, the new year looks to be off to a quiet and seasonable start for much of the region. Cluster analysis does hint at a potential pattern change nearing mid next week, but details remain limited at this time. So rain, off and on, showers, off and on, temperatures, kind of mid-range, no freezing weather in the extended forecast, not even frost in the extended forecast. So a week of wet, and then we're into the new year, and who knows what'll happen. It's actually great planting weather out there for things that are at least cold hardy, because the soil now, at least on my farm, with the rain we've had, is moistened down to about 18 inches, which means I can dig a proper planting hole. But still, this is the important part, the soil breaks apart as I'm digging. It's not coming up in big globs of mud. To dig a proper planting hole, we don't want you digging 
saturated soils because you slick the side of the hole with your shovel and you make essentially a little bathtub. So a good rule of thumb, I go out there when I have a day off or some time to plant things. I take a shovel to the spot that I'm thinking of planting. I put it in the ground and I lift up the soil and I flip it over and drop it back down on the ground. And if a big flop of mud falls down that doesn't fall apart, it's too muddy to plant. If it breaks apart, it's great. And we're right at that stage right now. Also, these temperatures, and they'll get into this with one of the questions that came in, are pretty good for seeding, throwing out wildflower seeds and throwing out grass seeds. As long as we're not down, freezing weather doesn't hurt the seed, but it doesn't germinate quickly. And there's a chance it'll rot if it stays too cold and wet. Temperatures in the 40s, night temperatures in the 40s, that grass seed will germinate real well. So if you want to uh, fill in some thin areas on your lawn or scatter some California poppy seeds with storms coming in this week, run out and do it today or tomorrow <laughs> or whatever you're listening to this. <laughs> uh, KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions to fund our operating costs. If you like the Davis Garden Show and all the other programming here at KDRT, just head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support but then while you're over there, you'll find all kinds of cool programming that you can read about and think about maybe listening to. Happy to report that Gitan is back on the air with her Heart to Heart program on Wednesdays. Every couple of weeks, she'll be coming in. Nothing brings greater rewards, she says, than a life filled with love and care for people and the world around us. With Heart to Heart, host Dr. G inspires and teaches listeners to live life richly and lightly. You uh, can listen live Wednesdays, noon to one. You can click on the RSS feed for the podcast there. Uh, public, uh, what do they call these? Public affairs programs such as these, non-music programs, archive forever. So you can go back and listen to old programs if you like. Likewise with Davis Garden Show. Music shows, you've only got two weeks, so you better move quickly. Anyway, Heart to Heart with Gitan, live Wednesdays, noon to one. And uh, any rebroadcast times for any of the other programming here at KDRT, you'll find on the schedule guide. Don, I have a question that is, I should have asked during the weather part. Okay. Uh, we were talking this morning, uh, every morning at breakfast, my husband and I go through the weather and look at things. And it's like, sometimes it'll say frost and then whatever it is. And sometimes it'll say fog and then whatever it is. And, and he asked me, can you have frost and fog on the same time? And I said, no, 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 because fog is droplets of moisture in the air. And frost is when those same droplets of moisture have fallen to the ground. But I thought I'd better ask you. Is you just it, said frost is what now? Um, moisture that's fallen to the ground. No, that's not correct. Moist, uh, frost is formed on the surface, on the, a surface, leaf, metal, glass, whatever, as that surface gets cold enough to freeze the water vapor that is in direct contact with it. But it's the I water vapor that. in the air, isn't it? It's in the air, but it's not the visible water vapor. Fog is visible uh, water vapor that is suspended droplets. So it's actually gone from vapor to liquid form. It's simply tiny enough to be suspended. I got that question answer wrong on a test once. So I know <laughs> I know my answer is correct because I was wrong 47 years ago or whatever it was. I thought the same thing you did, that frost settled from the air. But in fact, frost simply forms on a surface that has gotten below freezing and now the water vapor condenses rapidly to liquid and turns to ice so that's what frost forms from fog is suspended water droplets fog is just a cloud at ground level basically can, can you have both at the same time morning my daughter was born we did 
November 26, 1986, we drove to the hospital in Tule Fog. I mean, it was so dense. And it, of course, children always go into labor in the middle of the night, right? It was so dense that I was going about 25, 30 miles an hour on Interstate 80 because I could only see two of those little reflector blocks ahead of me. And I followed off onto Highway 113 where there were no reflector blocks at that time. And I just followed the line. And every so often the fog would lift and I could, oh my God, we can zoom. She's in labor. And then it would drop back down and I would slow down. Good news is we got to the hospital on time and the baby was born perfectly normally. And that morning there was frost. How can that be? The fog had lifted. So frost can form before fog and be trapped in by the fog. Frost can form after fog has lifted. The combination in our climate would be unusual. I'm sure there are places people are listening where fog and frost can occur together at the same time but in our region they have to happen in sequence because if there's fog if there's fog it's trapping warmer air in and typically prevents frost but i can tell you from experience more than three decades ago it can occur on the same night and so you had a frog <laughs> that's right <laughs> a little baby frog <laughs> um so do we have any events to announce or or activities or anything like that for oh we have the today? most Im- the most important event of the new year butterfly guru art shapiro UC Davis Distinguished Professor Emeritus, Department of Evolution and Ecology. He may be retired, but not from his research and not from sponsoring the annual Beer for a Butterfly contest in which the person who collects the first live cabbage white butterfly of the year in the three-county area of Yolo, Sacramento, and Solano counties wins a beer. Beginning January 1, 2024, Dr. Shapiro will be collaborating with the Bohart Museum of Entomology, which is the dropping-off point for your Pyrus Rapa entries. That's the official name of that particular butterfly. Bohart curator and collections manager Brennan Dyer will be accepting the entries. Shapiro launched this contest in 1972 as part of his scientific research to determine the first flight of the year in the three county area. His research involves long term studies of butterfly life cycles and climate change. So this contest begins at 1201, January 1. They won't be open at 12.01 in the morning, so don't take it over there then. The prize is either a beer or an equivalent. He says that this uh, butterfly is emerging earlier and earlier as the regional climate has warmed. Since 1972, he's quoted here, the first flight of the cabbage white butterfly has varied from January 1 to February 22nd, averaging about January 20th. Dr. Shapiro maintains a research website at the lovely website domain of butterfly.ucdavis.edu. He says the point of this contest actually is to get the earliest possible flight date for statistical purposes. The rules require that the animal be captured and brought in alive to be verified. That way no one can falsely claim to have seen one or misidentify something else as a cabbage white. Contest rules are must be an adult, no caterpillars or pupa, and must be captured outdoors, must be brought in alive to the Bohart Museum of Entomology, which is in the Academic Surge building on the UC Davis campus. Just type in Bohart, B-O-H-A-R-T, Museum of Entomology. You'll find a map that'll get you there. During work hours, please, from 8 a.m. to noon, from 1 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, must include full data, exact time, date, location of the capture, the contact information of the collector, and Brennan will certify that it's alive and refrigerate it. If it's collected on a weekend or holiday, it can be kept in the refrigerator for a few days. Do not freeze it. And Dr. Shapiro is the sole judge. He himself 
frequently wins this contest, spotted the first butterfly of the year in 2023 at 11 22 a.m. in West Sacramento, Yolo County. He did not collect the butterfly, but recorded it as the first of the year. No one came forth with any other. The latest uh, was, let's see, February 8th was the 11th latest first day since 1972, if that makes sense. For information, you can head on over to ucanr.edu, look for the blogs, and look for any of the blogs by Kathy Keatley Garvey, a prolific and outstanding writer for UCANR, UC News about entomology and nematology is where this one is, but you can just type in Shapiro Butterfly Contest, it'll get you there. And if you go to the Davis Enterprise website, they also have an article about this upcoming butterfly contest, and they have a gorgeous, gorgeous picture. I think this is the prettiest picture I've seen of this particular species. The contest is on and he usually wins. So see if you can beat Dr. Shapiro at his own game this year. Okay, we have questions that have come our way. What have you got in front of you there, Lois? Mahir from Irvine asks about poinsettias. We love yeah. to look and the colors are so fun. And it seems like we can put them in the ground outside in Irvine. How long will the colorful leaves, blooms, whatever, stay on the plants though? And what will they look like throughout the year? I heard on your last show that they need complicated things to bloom again, like 14 hours of darkness. Uh, what will they look like if I just leave them in the ground? I may experiment for me in the yard. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Um, I grew up, of course, in coastal San Diego, sunset zone 24, which never frosts. And so people down there would routinely stick them in the ground. My next door neighbor for whom I gardened for many years as a teenager, got one or two every year. And she, we just stuck them in in a row along one side of her house until eventually there was a row of poinsettias that went all the way down the side of the house. It was like a poinsettia hedge. Uh, what you're looking at is a bract. That's the term for a leaf that looks like a petal, basically. The flower itself is a little yellow thing in the center and they're probably past their flower now they they generally when you buy them are coming into bloom those blooms open they're the tiny thing in the middle and as they open out the flower begin the plant begins to go steadily into its dormant period um, the thing is modern poinsettia hybrids have been bred to hold those bracts for a very long time uh, that's been a, a specific breeding goal of poinsettia producers by the way the biggest producer in the world for a long time was right down there near Irvine, uh, Eki Ranch, which is just north of San Diego in Encinitas area. I got a chance to tour that when I was young, and it was amazing to see so many poinsettias. They, are, they, they were for a long time the largest producers of cuttings and liners for the poinsettia growers all around the world. Great climate for poinsettias. If you stick them in the ground, yes. So you you the farm was outside and they were growing poinsettias but i thought you said you had to do the dark thing that doesn't selling the dark encinitas they're just selling the plants they're selling the starters that other nurseries buy so for example when i when i buy poinsettias from a grower in oh, auburn for many years or stockton area as i do now they would buy the starts the cuttings or the rooted cuttings from ecky ranch they don't care whether they're blooming. They want the young plants. They also were major, major breeders. Paul Ecke Sr. is almost single-handedly responsible for making the poinsettia what it is today. That in, um, when I first, I'm gonna ramble here, folks. I'm an old guy. When I first joined the Nursery Association, I got to sit many times. I was in my 20s and 30s with a gentleman in his 80s who had been in the nursery business in California since about 1910 or 1920 
Earl Lago Marcino, Lago Marcino Seeds. He told us about how at that time, when he was in the nursery business in the 30s and 40s, the poinsettia was a rare exotic plant that you bought at a very high price from a florist or a nursery might have a few of these amazing plants that had been brought into bloom for the holidays and you'd pay it was like an orchid at that time it was that kind of a specialty thing well as with orchids mass production came along and greenhouses were constructed just for the purpose of bringing these into bloom for the holidays when i wrote an article 30 years ago about poinsettias the estimated crop at that time was 80 million plants and I would be surprised if it's less than that now. It might be, but uh, certainly they remain popular. You see them everywhere. And they're carefully grown from cuttings that are started in late spring or early summer, grown under very vigorous growing conditions in a greenhouse, you know, normal light conditions and warm. And there's a lot of pest things you have to deal with. It's a very, very high input specialty crop. And then at the right time, they start cloaking the benches with devices that automatically drop down black plastic over them to completely exclude light for 14 hours a day from about, I'd say the 1st of September. This is going from memory here, so I could be off by a couple of weeks until about mid-October, which causes them to initiate the flowering, which causes the beginning of the colorful bract formation. And by November, they're beginning to tinge. And by late November, they're generally fully colored up and ready to go to market. So it's a complicated thing. And you can thank Paul Ecke of the Ecke Ranch down there for producing not just the methods for, for growing these in large scale so they became an affordable thing to most people, but also hybridizing them like crazy to come up with varieties that were different colors, some amazing new colors in poinsettias that have just come out in the last few years, orange, purple, I mean, colors we never thought would happen in poinsettia bracts. And then the other thing that they did was came up with ones that held the bracts longer. So it's not uncommon if we have a couple of them sitting around in our nursery that didn't sell, we will just kind of set them upstairs in a window. They'll go till Valentine's Day with no problem, still looking very good. And then they look like they're going dormant. They kind of are. It's not a dormancy like a deciduous tree, but it's similar. They finally start dropping all those bracts and they go into a dormant phase. At that point, if you're going to grow it as a house plant, you typically are going to want to move it to a bigger pot because it's fully root bound, I guarantee it. And you'll want to put it, if it was a six inch one, into something about a 10 inch diameter. Use a reasonable quality potting soil. Makes a great outdoor plant in, the, in a slightly shaded or sheltered patio. Uh, fine indoors, I guess, but probably better outdoors where it would have brighter light conditions. And then, yes, as mentioned, that rather tricky part of bringing it back into bloom. However, if you live in Southern California, stick them in the ground. And they will turn into, as they did on the east side of my neighbor's house, about a three to four foot shrub, kind of lanky because the bottom half has no leaves typically. And down there in coastal San Diego, my recollection was they would bloom very nicely mid to late January. They got the day length that they needed a little later than you'd want for the holidays, but they still turned lovely color. I will say, though, that even under the best of conditions, they're a leggy plant. So this is not something that you're going to put as a focal point in your landscape, at least not in the foreground, probably better in the background. If you go online, you can find pictures in Florida, uh, uh, subtropical climates of poinsettias that are 8, 10, 12 feet tall. Great big plants coming into bloom in January, usually because they're further north than where they would naturally be doing this process which is Mexico for the record. Uh, so you'll get these big background plants, but all the colors up there. Uh, so if you do this in your yard, bear in mind, if you're listening to us in essentially a frost-free climate, that they're fairly lanky plants. Even the newer ones, which are more compact, still gonna be kind of a leggy plant, but easy to grow. I wouldn't put them in full hot sun if you're anywhere interior from the coast. On the coast, they can be practically anywhere. So nothing wrong with putting it in the ground and growing it that way if you live in 
sunset zones uh, 17 or 24, uh, maybe even 22, 23, or if you're in USDA zone 10 or 11, you would probably be fine with poinsettias just out in the ground. Just bear in mind, they won't do you the favor of blooming for the holidays. They'll do you the favor of blooming typically mid to late January, at least that was our experience in San Diego. Here writes, uh, they want to plant ranunculus, that's the Persian buttercups, uh, mm -hmm. from corms or from plants. So what is a good time to do this? And uh, they say, we love Persian buttercups, but I've never planted from corms. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the corms from the plants I planted last year that I left in the ground seem to have completely disintegrated. Yeah. Should we plant corms in now or should we wait for the plants to come into the nursery? What do we do? Fall planted is typical, although availability has been really sketchy for the last couple of years. Again, these mostly come from Southern California growers. Uh, one of the biggest growers of ranunculus was down in Lompoc area for many years on that wonderful sandy soil that they have there. Um, they are a strange looking thing. So when you buy it, be sure that the nursery person, do a little quiz, ask them which way is up. <laughs> it's always a fun one because the answer is prongs down, just in case you're looking at this funny thing, it's hard to figure out what, the, what it is. You're looking at the storage unit is the prong part and the and the little thing at the top is the part that's going to grow. So if you put them in upside down, I've done it just to test it out. And they, they never showed up. Uh, they do not typically come back. Ranunculus are generally planted as annuals, at least in our area. And I suspect that'll be true almost anywhere I can think of. You plant them in the fall if you can find them. I do recommend soaking them overnight before you plant them to hydrate them since they've typically been very dehydrated in the process of getting them to market. So soak them overnight, then plant them about an inch down, about a half an inch to an inch of soil covering them. And uh, they will come up and they'll give you blooms in the spring. It's a fairly short bloom season, but they're absolutely worth it. They Their blooms are just amazing color range and they look just like roses practically. I mean, really beautiful flowers and worth the effort. But I have not personally had them repeat bloom and neither do most of my customers. So you plant them basically as an annual flower that you do from these corm structures in the fall, or you can find them at a lot of garden centers in the early spring, late winter, early spring, and that's a great time to plant them as well. Just treat them like an annual. This is what I want people to understand. Whether you're paying premium prices for them or not, they're generally not going to come back after you've done them. So just figure, just count on that. I don't want people to think this is gonna be like a daffodil where it's gonna be in the same spot year after year. I will tell you my ongoing hostility to the white crown sparrows, I once planted 75, I think it was, ranunculus uh, corms in a beautiful grid pattern down my driveway. We first moved to the property and there was this big open bed. So I thought, I'm going to plant a whole bag of ranunculus here. And I'm backing out the driveway. I think, look, they're all coming up. Look, at they're all, all of them were coming up. And I came home, they're all gone. 100%. Gone, completely gone. So to the list of things that white crown sparrows like to eat, I add ranunculus sprouts. Once they're past the first couple inches, they do leave them alone. So if you have a problem with white crown sparrows in your area, uh, you may need to cover these as they get going, at least for the first couple inches of growth so that you can get them past that very vulnerable stage. Uh, that was one of my first experiences with the remarkably efficient eating habits of a white crown sparrow. <laughs> so one thing to know is it isn't just ranunculus sprouts. Most oh, anything no. that is a sprout, I mean, it's like having salad mm -hmm. for people. You know, this, oh, it's a sprout. It's it's tasty. It's young. It's easy to get. Okay. So this I is could... one good reason to buy <laughs> strawberries and keep those strawberry baskets and then put them upside down over whatever new little thing you've got 
And that that'll keep the birds off of it long enough for it to get big enough that it it's yeah. no longer interesting. Well, this is this actually illustrated one of the points Lois has made when we talk about white ground sparrows. What I had right near this bed was a well-established three to four-year-old Ceanothus Julia Phelps, beautiful Ceanothus, which lasted about five years, fairly typical here in the valley. It was just really coming into its own, and this bed was right in front of it. If you want to plant native plants for bird cover, I highly recommend Ceanothus. I particularly like, in, if you're in the coastal area, Ceanothus Thursiflorus, that whole group, Julia Phelps, Dark Star, Cobalt Blue Flowers, amazing plants. In the valley, I've rarely seen one go more than three, four, or five years. My R's made it to about seven before they finally fell apart. But that bird cover, well, white crown sparrows like that a lot. So I was creating perfect cover for them. They come hopping out. One of my customers mentioned a technique they had adopted. They went to the dollar store, Dollar Tree, whatever, you know, those chains that you see everywhere. Those kind of covers that you would take to picnics where you would cover the food to keep the flies off of them the very lightweight she said they're like 10 15 cents a piece you can buy them very very inexpensively at these places well they are lightweight so there's a risk of them blowing away unless you anchor them down she found them really handy for just covering over two or three you know group of seedlings to get them to that past that first vulnerable stage i thought that was brilliant just let you know, they do happen to like young ranunculus shoots, but they're worth it. So you can plant them from from the the bulb starters. We call them bulbs, but they're they're another form of geophyte in the fall. Some places sell those in the spring. Try it. I would definitely soak them if you sell them planting them in the spring because those are probably been stored through the winter. So they definitely need to rehydrate. But young plants are how a lot of the nurseries have gone to for ranunculus simply because they they sell better. Honestly, that's really the reason. Some of these things that are grown from bulbs traditionally or had been grown from bulbs traditionally, they don't sell that well in the bulb form anymore. People, bulb sales, I can tell you, having been in business now for more than 40 years, our bulb sales are 20% of what they were in the 1980s and 1990s because people just don't do them that way. They do, however, walk in in February looking for daffodils. So we have daffodil plants for them to plant. And you'll go into nurseries in January, February, March and find ranunculus starts. And that's a great way to go. Some people like to even buy them in bloom. That's cool, but understand that you're just going to get a few weeks of bloom out of that one plant and that will be it. So I just want people to know that as they buy them. Don't think of this as a long-term addition like a like a daffodil or a grape hyacinth would be. They're typically a one-shot deal. Same thing with anemones, but boy, we planted a bag, 50 anemone, I don't even know what those are, corms, I think, out front at our garden center last year. And that was one of the most spectacular displays we have ever done. Uh, one of my staff people took the bag and put them every six to eight inches all the way down the sidewalk. And they went on for seven or eight weeks. The color range of anemones is phenomenal. Some of them are coming back, maybe 10% of them. But again, I don't promise that with the kind of anemones that you're planting that way. But boy, the, the amount of bloom we got out of them was definitely worth the cost of that bag of bulb-like structures. I was wondering about some bulbs that I have loved for years and haven't seen very much lately, and that is Ixia and Freesia. Now, I did I did find a source for Freesia a few years back, so I did get a few, but yep. but they're not coming back very strongly, and and I haven't seen Ixia for sale in in long time. 
Frisia should multiply quite freely for you if you have a good sunny location for them. And I think that may be your problem in terms of them coming back. A lot of bulbs like Frisias will grow and bloom in, in shade. They'll do their thing. They just won't get enough energy from, because they don't have enough light to multiply, increase, return necessarily. So nothing wrong with planting them, but just don't count on them to repeat. Um, and Frisia bulbs are out there. I mean, they're, they're definitely something you can find. It's just availability, as I was mentioning, has been challenging because of competing industries. Ixia is one of those wonderful bulbs bulbs from South Africa that does very, very well here in California. Ixia, Sparaxis, Montbretias, Watsonias. Most people don't know them by name. And if you look in a bulb catalog, most of which come from East Coast distributors, they'll be in the back because these are too tender for most of their customer base. California, we're fine with them. But in Michigan, no, you aren't planting freezes out in the garden because they'll freeze. Here, anywhere USDA zones 9 and 10 is my understanding. I don't know about zone 8. Certainly sunset zones 8, 9, 14 to 24. Put them right in the ground and all of those things I mentioned will multiply freely. I mean, in the case of Sparaxis, they'll become marginally invasive. And there are others like Montbretias, Crocosmias, which have naturalized over in the Mendocino coast area. In many of our coastal areas, they, they escape from gardens and grow in alleys and places like that. So some of them can actually become, I won't call them invasive because they haven't truly become botanically invasive in, in wildlands, but they do naturalize quite readily. They don't generally get sold in the fall. Those are spring planted bulbs and almost every nursery has just given up on the spring planted bulbs as something to sell in that form because nobody was buying them gladiolus dahlias all that kind of stuff sales just dropped and dropped and dropped you bring in dahlias growing they'll buy them you bring in ixias in pots people will buy them if they know what they are certainly we sell we sell crocosmias and montbretias and some of these other south african species in containers and if they're in bloom they sell like crazy so some of us have begun to realize a bulb is usually just a perennial. If we look at it that way, instead of isolating it like retailers like to, the bulbs are over here and the annuals are over here and the perennials are over there. A bulb is just a perennial. So put several of them in a pot, wait till they come up, put them out with the perennials, put a picture on the pot, it'll sell. That's how they're selling now. So you're seeing them in nurseries in their season, which is a fairly narrow season for each one of those things I just mentioned. But a good example is crocosmias. I have three or four growers that do crocosmias, a bunch of new varieties, orange, red, yellow, and they're generally available late spring into early summer because that's when they're coming into bloom. And uh, what you're buying is a pot packed full of bulbs that's growing like a perennial. You're thinking of it like an agapanthus or something like that. And you put it out in your garden. You're probably not going to find the bulbs readily at most retailers because the sales of those simply decline to the point of not being worth us stocking. But you will probably find them on mail order sources. Some of the really well-known uh, mail order companies will typically have them, although again, in the back of the catalog because they're not hardy to most of their client customer base. And you can order them that way. But just watch for them at nurseries or ask because some nurseries do bring them in specially particularly I've, you know, I've seen Ixia occasionally, Sparaxis occasionally, the others that I mentioned more commonly. So Mahir writes about some lawn trouble. Uh, we have some trouble areas in our new small lawn that we started in our backyard after ripping out concrete, as I had written to you previously. 
Mm-hmm. And it's really fun, but has some random patches that haven't taken and is also sparser than we'd like. So we were planning on, quote, overseeding, unquote, it over the winter to take advantage of the rains. However, there are some random areas where there is a moss-like thing growing. And I'm worried that without removing that or maybe scraping it off, the seeds won't take. Any advice? Is it as simple as scraping it off and running a rake through the lawn lightly and then overseeding and sprinkling some compost on top of the seeds hidden from the birds? Or should I just reseed aggressively (laughs) and hope it takes better this time? Am I watering too much? As background, I planted this lawn myself with a large delivery of sandy loam soil, which I then seeded with Stonehenge hard fescue and Hattrick perennial ryegrass and a 50-50 mix. I'm attaching some pictures at the end of this email. So the, the soil import is the thing that I've, I've zoomed in on right there. The fact that some soil was brought in that's a sandy loam, so it doesn't retain nutrients. I mean, that's okay. We can work with that, but that's part of what you're seeing. Great picture. It is sparse. So re, in, seeding in more of those seeds that we talked about, that, those are two varieties I've touted on the show and I've done very well with. Hattrick is a slow-growing, relatively speaking, perennial ryegrass with a nice dark green color. If you're turf experts out there, you'll be surprised how dark green this one is. Most ryegrass are shinier green so it looks really nice stonehenge hard fescue is a tough slow growing very short very fine bladed fescue and the two together have worked very well for me so i've just been mentioning that one for people and as far as i can tell all over california that combination or something like it is likely to do well both of them fill in fairly slowly the ryegrass faster than the fescue and from the picture Mainly, it looks like it needs nitrogen. And grass, of course, is very responsive to nitrogen, as fertilizer companies have been telling us for decades. Feed your lawn six times a year with the highest nitrogen fertilizer you can buy. No, you don't need to do that. But if the lawn is not fully dense, if you look down and you can see dirt, then you need either more seed or more nitrogen or both. And feeding a lawn midwinter here in Northern California is not real effective because the temperatures are too low for them to take up the nitrogen effectively. You'll sometimes go to garden centers and see quote winter feed or winter fertilizers all they've done there is they've add one source of nitrogen that is taken up better in cold weather so if you're trying to feed mid-december mid-january you might look for those winter type fertilizers but the fact is that by the end of january the temperatures are typically getting up high enough here that even regular lawn fertilizer will work and organic lawn fertilizers although slower will feed for a longer period of time so the first thing is that you've got a sandy loam that was brought in that doesn't hold nutrients So you need to feed a little more often until you get the density that you're after. Also, as I say, if you can see dirt, you need more grass. And so the simple thing, either of the techniques that were mentioned will work, carefully raking out the stuff, seeding, top dressing with compost, or my favorite lazy technique, walk out when it's about to rain and throw some more grass seed on the thin areas. We call that Cornell officially calls it repetitive overseeding. What we do is we (laughs) see they have a whole printable handout on this topic but what it really comes down to is keep throwing out grass seed every couple weeks until you get the density that you're after and i'd really rather have people spending money on grass seed than fertilizers and compost unnecessarily the compost isn't a bad idea does help keep the birds away a little bit helps keep the moisture in if you have a long period without rain but i very commonly right now for example here in our 
area on the Sacramento Valley. It would be a great time to go out with some grass seed. Nights are going to be in the 40s. Days are going to be in the 50s to basically 60. No dry north wind. we got 7 to 10 days of that ahead. Be very likely to get good results if you went out and scattered grass seed right now and just throw it out there. Throw enough of it out that the birds can have 5 or 10% of it and the rest of it will hopefully germinate. Uh, if that is a big problem with the birds, cover it with something, compost or whatever. But I have gotten very good results just repetitively overseeding during the winter. I get the the poorest or slowest results mid-December to early January because we're cloudy and really cold here, but it works. It just takes longer to germinate. And by late January and into early February, grass seed tends to sprout very quickly. So when you have suitable seeding weather, throw more seed out there, focus it on the thinner areas, but it does look like you need some nitrogen. When we get places where there's green stuff that looks like moss growing, that tells me it's probably not going to be a great place for grass because if it's shady enough here in the valley for moss to grow shady and damp and cool enough for moss to go it's probably too shady for most turf species to do well but in that situation when people tell us they have some shade and we're selling the hattrick rye and we're selling the stonehenge fescue we suggest they put in some percentage of creeping red fescue because that's more shade tolerant so if you want to add that to your blend it looks very much like the stonehenge fescue but tends to grow out longer it's a little more sensitive to low mowing so be careful not to cut it during a heat wave or pretty much anytime it's real hot in the summer here in the valley great if you can just let it grow out naturally it makes a beautiful ground cover that way but 10 to 20 percent of that blended in creeping red fescue blended in with the hard fescue and the perennial ryegrass will make a very good turf combination for most parts of california and that'll give you something that can take what is probably a shadier area if you're seeing that kind of moss growing in that area well mahir is in irvine and so that's not the same climate as we have is it Right. It's coastal. And um, it, it's possible there's a shadow pattern from the house or from a tree causing the moss to grow. In general, if you've got moss growing, it's going to be not optimal for grass. So keep that in mind. But that's the reason I mentioned getting that one other species of grass in there. Looking at the pictures, that yellow brownish color mm-hmm. seems to me like it's it's lack of water how often would you have to water in irvine is that one of those places that that gets rained on every day or it's southern california so no they don't they don't get rain any more than uh san diego area so you do have to water thoroughly when you do probably a couple times a week most of the year would be fine uh because they don't get as hot as we do here either not as hot or dry um when i see yellowing on, on grass blades in midwinter I do tend to stop and get down. This annoys people who are with me. <laughs> Look closely at the grass blades to see what's going on. Dad, dad, come on, dad, dad, no. <laughs> come on, look, look at this. I want you to show you something here. And if you look on the blades, you may see some rust, which is a fungus that attacks certain grass species more than others, but it can happen on almost any species. Very common on bluegrass, sometimes on ryegrass. I've even occasionally seen what looks like rust on fescue, but its biggest problem is on bluegrass. And if you're lawn, those of you listening who have a typical old-fashioned blend of fine-bladed grasses, it probably has 10, 20, 30% bluegrass, Kentucky bluegrass in it. If they're beginning to yellow and look a little even orangish, if you look closely at the leaf blade, down on your knees, look closely at the leaf blade. It's okay. Your, your family will make fun of you, but it's all right. You'll see these little orange pustules on the leaf blade itself. If you rub your thumb on it, the orange will come off on your thumb like Cheetos color, Cheetos cheese puff color. That's a fungus. 
but we don't rush for a fungicide. Rust is specific to this kind of rust is specific to grass. It will get on the grass when the grass is not growing vigorously because temperatures are low and, and, and there's less day length, there's less daylight, less sunlight. And so we tend to see rust in midwinter to late winter, particularly on bluegrass, but sometimes other species, it'll just outgrow it. It'll grow, outgrow it faster if you fertilize the lawn. So the standard recommendation in the turf industry, as well as homeowners, if you're getting rust on your, on your lawn or it's yellowing, older leaves yellowing, nitrogen will usually take care of the problem. So one question has come up about a, a phenomenon we see here at this time of year on certain trees called marcescence. Marcescence. Um, oak trees in particular in our area, and there's other species that do this in other regions. Uh, all the other trees have turned color, or these are deciduous trees, remember, oaks. There are some that are called live oaks that don't drop their leaves, but there are some that don't drop their leaves in the fall. There are some that turn color, and then they drop their leaves, except some of them don't. Marcescence is the characteristic of hanging on to a leaf that should drop. That's my def definition of it. I think Wikipedia has a more formal definition. Uh, there are species of oaks and beech and hornbeams in the top of my head, those are the major ones that people encounter this. Red oaks in particular. I have a beautiful Schumarty red oak. I planted 1992. The plant is 40 feet across, 40 feet tall. A couple of weeks ago, I took some lovely pictures of the leaves that were turning kind of a really pretty red-brown color. Last week, it was more brown than red. Now they're all brown. And no, 80% of them are still hanging on there. Marcescence is when an otherwise deciduous species doesn't form a, a really effective abscission layer, which is what happens to deciduous trees that typically do turn color and drop their leaves. And so the leaves don't detach. They just hang and then they turn brown and they hang on until something. In the case of red oaks, they hang on until a couple strong rainstorms knock them off. So generally by mid to late January, my Schumardi red oak is bare like all the other trees around it. Some of them, pin oak is a good example, Quercus palustris, they hang on there until the new growth comes on in the spring. I mean, seriously, the brown leaves are hanging on there until March. That's a real unselling point. There's nothing wrong with the tree. It's not dead. It looks dead, but there's nothing wrong with the tree. It's just not dropping its leaves. And they don't actually push off until new growth starts to come out in the spring and the leaves fall at that point. Um, to, I won't sell that species because most people don't want to look out their window at a dead looking brown leafed tree for two and a half to three months. If it's bare, fine. It looks like it's supposed to look. So this is really the issue. It's mostly an aesthetic thing. And there's probably some, you know, evolutionary adaptation involved here. But mainly it's just that the, the abscission layer doesn't form. So the leaves hang until it's partially formed. And so a good strong windstorm will bring a bunch of them down. Two to three rainstorms, generally speaking, the red oaks are fine. But some species hang on even longer. So we're always curious about a new species of oak, whether it's going to be marcescent. Uh, whether it's going to be a, an aesthetic problem in the landscape. We've been planting the Texas red oak on some of the tree Davis plantings down along Russell Boulevard, for example. We won't, we didn't know whether it was going to be strongly marcescent. Unfortunately, it does appear to be marcescent. The trees now are brown with leaves hanging on them. My next question will be, is that just a couple of weeks or is that like all the way till February? Uh, so that would be a concern. It doesn't hurt the tree. Again, it's just an aesthetic thing. And those of you living in colder climates, you may see this on American American beech apparently does the same thing. Here in Davis, there is one other species that we have a few of around, and they're more common in rainier climates, hornbeam, Carpinus, the hornbeam trees. And there are some of the fastigiate 
hornbeam, we're moving off into more jargon here, around Davis. It's a very formal looking, very upright, almost columnar or pyramidal shaped tree. It's really a very lovely tree. And the fall color is a nice sort of yellow orange color. And they turn brown and they hang on there typically almost till February. So when people ask me, what about hornbeams? How do they do here? I say, oh, they do great. They're not particularly drought tolerant, but they're great in the lawn or a situation like that. Just be aware, it's gonna look brown and dead for about half of the winter. And uh, that is again, an aesthetic unselling point with hornbeams. Marcescence is something to be aware of in some species of trees. If you're choosing a 40 to 60 foot tree, you probably wanted to drop its leaves clean. So keep that in mind as you're looking for a, a large oak or if you're listening in the regions where beech trees do well or hornbeam, those are, that's a consideration. So Don, what's the word if the seed pods hang on? Is that marcescence? No, that's, that, there is no specific term for that. Some do, some don't. Like and the red buds. Yeah, red buds. And that's, you know, this is, again, it's just an aesthetic thing. It's not a problem for the tree that they're hanging on there. Uh, seedlessness is a desired trait in trees as they're selecting cultivars of red bud is a good example. There's a Chinese red bud called Don E-Golf, which is sterile and does not set pods. And so you get the same beautiful blooms on it. And then you don't have the pods to look at. Apparently those bother some people. There are some of the uh, desert willows, Chelopsis linearis, which is a great tree for our area. As long as you water it carefully, it needs to be kept dry so it doesn't outgrow, grow itself to death. It's one of those kind of plants. It, uh, and the original ones that uh, came on the market, uh, Desert Willow, have pods that hang on there. It doesn't really bother me, but apparently some people find that unattractive. So there are some like Bubba variety, which doesn't set very many pods. And there are some that Monrovia Nursery has introduced that set none. So if you're looking for a tree and the, the appearance of the pods hanging on there bothers you, in those cases, there isn't particularly a term that I'm aware of for the pods hanging on, but they, uh, they, their presence does seem to bother some people. So in some cases, there are seedless varieties or podless varieties, I guess you want to say, of those particular types of trees. I can actually see why there might be an advantage to a redbud that's whose uh, seeds hung on it until the windstorm came, because then the wind would blow it further away. And instead of everything dropping right at the base of the same bush, well, maybe it spread sure. a bit more. Sure, it could be. And, you know, some of them, I have seen Western redbuds that were so cloaked with seed pods that, um, you know, it was a little bit unattractive. My immediate reaction was, cool, seeds, let's go get some. <laughs> That's the propagator in me. <laughs> so. What's the best lavender? <laughs> there you go. I love open-ended questions. Well, first of all, I've never really understood why people ask what's the best this or the best that, because there's not always just best one. For best for what? Well, that's the that's the immediate question. For what purpose? Um, for disease resistance and, and cold tolerance? Phenomenal is not no, standing no, for, for fragrance. Oh, what's that would probably be gro grosso, grosso or Provence are the two that are grown widely for their for their fragrance and for potpourris and sachets and things like that. But they're not exclusive. There's others. Those are actually hybrid lavendin. They're crossed between two species of lavender. Um, they have just higher oil content and more of the aromatics in them. But the disease resistance and the cold tolerance is actually an important characteristic in some places. So some of our listeners may be in rainier climates than here, where lavender, you know, we know that lavender is easy to overwater and kill in the summertime here. Here we can control that, but in places where it rains, that is not as easy to control. I've read um, recommendations for people who are doing lavender farms, which are kind of a 
small scale farm where you can sell the stuff for potpourris and sachet and even oil in some cases. Uh, it, people do that and they want to know what's the best way to do it. Well, a typical recommendation if you're in a rainy climate is to put them on the top of a of a of a mound or you know furrow your fields and put them on the upper part not where the water drains so water always drains away from the crown of the plant that's very important but phenomenal and sensational are two new introductions that are touted as being quite rot resistant so if you're in an area where there's summer rainfall or if you don't have as much control over the irrigation those two just don't rot out as readily as some of the others so if that could be the most the best lavender for you the best lavender for a smaller garden is going to be one of the dwarf types such as hide coat which is well known very tight growing twickle purple is one of my favorites in that category only gets about 14 to 16 inches maybe 24 inches across very deep purple very fragrant and so in a smaller yard where a regular lavender if you've ever grown them they can get pretty big Irregular English lavender or Grosso or Provence, the cultivars that are hybrids, three to four feet across, sort of sprawling outward after a few years, generally only lasting for a few years, mainly just because of their growth habit, not because the plant dies, but because it gets open in the middle, hard to prune them correctly. Um, look for one of the dwarfer types. If you have a normal garden border, but it's only two, three feet deep, you probably don't want a big old English lavender in there. Look for one of these dwarf types. And probably the most popular that you can buy at a lot of places that's sort of intermediate with respect to all these things I just talked about is a, a variety named after a rather famous botanical garden, Munstead, M-U-N-S-T-E-A-D, Munstead or Munstead. It's a dwarf-ish one. It gets about 18 to 24 inches, equal spread, nice fragrance, classic silvery gray leaf color, and readily obtainable for two reasons. One, it can grow from cuttings, but also, people found many years ago, that seedlings from Munstead look an awful lot like the parent itself. They're not exactly genetically identical, but they're close enough that you'll see seedlings of Munstead sold as Munstead, whereas all the others have to be propagated from cuttings to remain true. So this is one that comes true, phrase we use, from seed enough that you'll find it at quite a lot of places. A lot of bedding plant growers like to do Munstead because it's easy for them to get a hold of inexpensive propagules. It's an easy one to grow and it's just kind of intermediate in all these characteristics. Good fragrance, good size, got the right color. Uh, the only thing it doesn't have is that added crown rot or root rot resistance that phenomenal and sensational seem to have. So here's a question, Don. Um, Lots of people want to grow wildflowers. And is is this a good time to plant wildflower seeds? Where do you get wildflower seeds? Tell me about growing wildflowers. Well, as a retailer, this is a real conundrum for us because the packets of things called wildflower seeds, I look at them before I order them, and pretty much every commercial variety packet that's out there contains sweet alyssum, or cosmos or things like that that are added because they grow easily and they're not wildflowers here they're not even native to north america so i think that if people are planting wildflower seed they should plant wildflower seed of something that is at least somewhat regionally appropriate at least native somewhere in california would be good preferably even native here to the sacramento valley you can find some excellent sources for those online i can't get them wholesale but come uh, outfits like the theodore Payne foundation the excellent uh, source of the wildflowers themselves, you don't have to buy a mix. You can buy California poppies and, you know, tidy chips and things like that separately. Mix your own. Mix your own, right. And we're actually talking about that at our nursery because so many people were asking for wildflower seeds. And I don't want to sell you something that isn't really 
native somewhere in this region, at least. Uh, so we're looking at the possibility next year of maybe buying in bulk and making our own packets or something. Uh, yes, right at the time that it's raining and the soil is good and saturated is a great time to go out there and scatter wildflower seeds. Right now, if you're listening, I would say the winter solstice is an excellent time to plant California poppy seeds and other wildflowers. They would have come up a few weeks back if you had planted them. You would have needed to water them because we didn't get enough rainfall. Uh, late October, early November is a popular time for planting wildflower seeds. If you do that, you have to water. And I mean probably daily during the initial period. Because remember, you scatter California poppy seed, you shouldn't cover it. It should just go on bare soil. And if a dry wind comes up while it's germinating, all those little babies will die. So you need to water daily if you plant them before the rains are here. Well, the rains are here. So this is actually a great time to plant California poppies and other wildflowers. Look on the label, see what you're actually planting. If it's got garden flowers in it, as well as natives, keep that in your yard. Don't scatter that. You know, I, I keep reading on some of the Native Plant Society pages. Let's go scatter wildflower seeds on vacant lots and things. Well, let's not. <laughs> Let's not do that. If you know what you're doing, if you know what would actually be native on that vacant lot, fine. But if you're just going, I'm going to buy some wildflower seeds at the nursery and throw them out on vacant lots to encourage the native wildflowers, you may not be doing that. You may be planting invasive plants. I hate to say that, but it's just the, the pattern with commercial vendors of these seed mixes. Um, Theodore Payne Foundation is one example of a company that will sell direct to the public, and there are others out there. And then, then you can buy either mixes or, uh, as I say, the straight species themselves. I'm happy to tell you all, if you're local, that Hedgerow Farms, which is a company here in Yellow County that, that collects ecotypes, they actually track exactly where these things are coming from. They sell wildflower seed to bigger outfits that are doing revegetation projects. The company was sold to a larger seed company. And as part of that, they have said, and I believe this is already underway, they're going to have packets of wildflower seeds available. So a company that's producing them here in California, here in Yolo County, is probably our best bet in the long run for that kind of thing. So there are ways to find the right kinds of wildflower seeds to plant something that's not going to become a nuisance or that is really truly a wildflower. Um, but it's harder. You have to do a little research on the internet. So I'll at least get you started with Theodore Payne. And hey, maybe next year we'll have our own special Redwood Barn wildflower blend. So here's a question, Don. Is there a fruit tree that will grow on the north side of the house where there isn't much sun? Um, I usually refer people to plums in that situation because plum trees will grow in fruit almost anywhere. I have never gardened in the fog belt of San Francisco, but I'm told that plums do just fine there. Most other fruit just doesn't get enough sunlight to get good sugar content. And plums, we don't really expect a super high sugar content. That balance of acid and sweetness we've talked about so many times is expected in Japanese plums. So plums are a good bet. As you know, they don't take a lot of maintenance. You still get loads of fruit no matter what you do. In fact, if anything, pruning for fruit reduction is one of your major goals in managing a plum tree. But even if you don't do that, you'll get a great big tree that just showers the ground with plums. So in my opinion, uh, they don't have to be in absolutely full sun. Probably the quality would be a little better if they were. Uh, yield might be higher, but most home gardeners aren't concerned at all about yield. So I think that the Japanese plums in general are probably your best choices there. European plums are grown for their sweetness. Those are the prune plums. And so they, people expect a high sugar content. I expect they would probably be adequately sweet even in partial shade or on the north side because they, they do have a surprisingly high sugar content. Calling them prune plums is not a great thing for us as retailers because that really unsells it. People don't like prunes. We should call them sweet, sweet plums. 
Well, some people like prunes, but they're an old person's fruit. So did you know no. this is true? The, the they're called fruit, dried plums. They, they're they, being sold as dried plums. Yes, the prune industry requested the ability to label their plums dried plums instead of prunes because prunes for old people's digestive problems, but dried plums are delicious. <laughs> what they're using for that is European plums, and they are delicious. European plums are way more sugar, way less tart. So perhaps less interesting to some people, but I have one. And every time I walk by it, when it's ripe, we pick some and they're really sweet. They're quite delicious. And they also hang on the tree a lot longer than most of our Japanese plums. So there's about a four week period when you can walk by this tree and pick one of the sweetest fruit you've ever had. They're very easy to grow. And my guess is they wouldn't be as sweet on the north side, but they'd be fine. So I think plums are probably your best bet. Uh, lots of people are looking for garlic. Is it time to plant garlic too early, too late? What about planting store-bought garlic? There is a really serious shortage of garlic for the nursery industry this year. And all of us got about half of what we wanted. It came in in October and was gone before the end of the month. That is the best time in the Sacramento Valley or most, most of California to plant garlic. You buy the head, you break it into cloves, you plant the cloves, and each one turns into a head. If you get it started in October, you get a nice head start. It grows up vigorously sits through the coldest period of December, then pushes out very quickly in late January, and you're typically harvesting garlic in early to mid-summer, depending on the variety. We only really want you to plant the garlic that we sell because it's certified disease-free. So there are some diseases that can hit garlic in production. It doesn't happen every time. It's okay to buy garlic at the store, organically grown garlic at the store, so it hasn't been treated with a sprouting inhibitor. And you can break that up and plant it out. And December is a little late, but I'm sure in our climate, it will come up just fine, probably stall for a few weeks until things warm up and then grow. And you'll still harvest good garlic late spring, early summer, depending on the variety. Uh, and it'll be a little smaller than it would have been if you'd gotten an earlier head start. But you can still plant even into January. And there's places in the country where people plant their garlic in the spring and they harvest mid to late summer. We are in a place where you can get great results with anything in the onion family. And so we're kind of lucky here. You plant garlic in October, you'll get big, robust cloves next June. There's other places where they can only plant in March or April and they don't harvest until August and they're smaller. But almost anywhere you're listening, unless it's really rainy all summer and you're just too darn cold, garlic should do well. It loves heat, it likes full sun, and it needs pretty good drainage. The disease issue is that if you're growing it along and you happen to have a stem rust that came in on the plant that you purchased, which the grower wouldn't have any reason to care about or treat for, you may get that or another couple of diseases I could mention, and they'll kill the plants or the whole bed will just not do well and you just won't get very good yields. So I don't recommend store-bought potatoes or garlic because of that, but it doesn't hurt to do it every now and then. It's just, I wouldn't routinely buy your starting plants that way. Better off to buy certified disease-free potatoes and garlic and plant them at the right time of year which in the case of potatoes is late February, March, early April in our area. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.